it's very, it's very normal that people will go somewhere, usually overseas, for a two-week or three-week period of time, isn't it? It's a normal thing that people do. People will save up money, they'll put it aside, they'll plan for it diligently, and then they'll go. And that is a normal part of life. People call it a holiday. Maybe you've heard of those things before. Yes. But what I want to say is that we can sometimes think, oh, that's what we spend our money and our time and our resources upon. But to go on a short-term team to somewhere like Qatar or wherever, oh, we don't want to do that. And we, we make choices accordingly. But I want to put before you that actually it's certainly worthwhile investing your time and also your money in going on a short-term team like this. We might ask the question, you know, what if it's so short, if it's just for a couple of weeks, what are we going to get out of it? Maybe it's just not worth bothering. But you wouldn't answer, you wouldn't put that same question to any of these activities. You wouldn't say, oh, it's just such a short term hanging out in the Bermuda for two weeks. Why are you bothering? It's such a short term going, going uh, skiing in Switzerland for two weeks. Why are you bothering? It's, why are you bothering to climb up Mount Kilimanjaro? Why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? And the answer is, why are you doing it? Because you want an experience. That is why you make this investment. You, you go skiing and probably also to get, become a better skier. So therefore, following that same logic, going on a short-term team on a mission, why do you go? You will become a better Christian. And when I, I use that kind of term guardedly, you understand what I mean. We are saved by grace. I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying in terms of like drawing near to God, finding him, his reality more, more sincerely, more really, that is something that is accomplished by putting yourself out there and going on a short-term team. There's merit in it. Now, when we think of the, the New Testament, team is the New Testament norm. People aren't, well, you're saved individually, you come to, Jesus calls people individually, but immediately we're placed in the context of brothers and sisters. That's one way of looking at it, or disciples, another. But you don't do your discipleship by yourself. Even when Jesus calls the apostles, he calls them, individually they're called, but they're brought immediately into a band of others. Jesus doesn't do one-to-one discipleship with any of these people. It's always in the context of a group. And then, if you look through the, the Gospels in particular, I've given a couple of examples. So Luke 9, Luke 10. This is when Jesus sends out his disciples. He sends them out in pairs. They're sent out in twos. They're not sent out individually. They're sent out together. When you move on to uh, to the book of Acts, the general thrust is that people are sent out corporately. Now, there are a couple of exceptions. Who knows one? Yes. Philip yeah, Philip in Samaria. Philip's ministry is just it's kind of a snapshot. He, he's there in Samaria. Well, in Samaria, he's there by himself, and he leads this revival. And then afterwards, he goes into the desert, doesn't he? Holy Spirit impels him to go to the desert, and he meets the Ethiopian eunuch. Peter also... At one point, he, he's out by himself. But generally, that is the exception. And when the apostles are sent to Samaria, that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit, it's not one apostle that's sent. It's two. They're always sent. Well, I say always. Again, I use that 
with a bit of a reservation, but not much reservation. Then you have Paul. Paul in his ministry, when he goes around, he's initially, in his first ministry trip, he's with Barnabas. Secondly, and thereafter, he's with Silas. And when you follow the names of the New Testament, which is fascinating as an experiment, you can look at Romans 16, you can look at 2 Timothy 4, Titus 3. You can see this interplay of team life. People are constantly in team. There's this fluidity about them. Paul might go somewhere, he'll leave a couple of people, he'll carry on, these people will come back. There's an interplay of relationship that's happening constantly. And that's important for us to to bear in mind. So when we go anywhere, we are following this New Testament pattern. We are in a New Testament framework. So what is so good about being in a team? Well, firstly, is this premise of multi-gifting. So the idea is, and this is not a shock to anyone, but that no one, not even within this church, carries all the gifts within them. I'm sorry, Ian, Alan, sorry. So we, and the whole premise of that is that there is a need for dependency upon one another. One person does not hold all the gifts. And therefore, within the team context, you have this wonderful kind of uh, motion of, of an interplay with different people helping one another out. And that is important because it lends to humility. And I think that's a key characteristic that we carry as Christians. We should be humble in all that we do. But it is also a key strength, this idea of multi-gifting, against fear. And when you're going and putting yourself out there in doing any kind of ministry, as Alison made the reference before, there are many adversaries in the context of the open door. Fear is a big thing. And Jesus talks about it as well in sending his disciples out. There is fear out there. And I think it's so much more straightforward to cope with fear when you're with someone else. And especially if you're, if you're going out and if you're doing evangelism, if you've done it before, if you're in a pair, you kind of spur one another on. Each of you might be both terrified about going to talk to uh, anyone about Jesus, but the fact that you're with someone else kind of pushes you on to go and talk to them. I don't know if you've had that experience. That's certainly been mine. And wrestling with fear is something that is overcome much more readily when you're standing with a brother or a sister next to you. They help you out. So we go out to together, we, this gifting is flowing. Another good reason is that we are powerful in prayer. Alison's already raised, uh, raised this point. We're powerful in prayer because prayer, uh, powerful prayer demands agreement. In Matthew eighteen nineteen, Jesus says, if two of you, if two of you agree on earth, now, I'm not saying that we don't, don't pray individually. Please don't get me wrong. But there is an emphasis here about gathering together in prayer. So if I go out by myself to wherever on a prayer trip, that's all very well. I'm not going to be agreeing with anyone apart from the Holy Spirit. And much, uh, however good that is, it's probably better if I'm agreeing with Andrew or, or with anybody else of you. You know, if I'm agreeing with you, there is power in prayer. Another good reason to go out as a team is it's a way to deepen relationships very quickly, very quickly. These uh, these teams are, are short-term in their nature, so we're talking about a couple of weeks. But how are relationships built? Relationships are built over time, are they not? So you may be in a church for years, and yet you might know only a few people 
in a not very, very deep way. Where do you get that relationship from? You, you, you get to know someone over, over coffee, maybe, at the end of a church meeting. But how long is that coffee time? 10 minutes? 20 minutes? Maybe you have someone around for your house for, in, for a meal in the week. An hour? Uh, maybe you meet someone outside another time to pray. Another hour? When you add up the hours in the week that we spend with one another, it's not all that much. But over years, it stacks up and you get to know people well. Imagine all of that time condensed into a couple of weeks. So you wake up in the morning, there's Andrew. I have lunch, he's there again. Dinner, again. All of my waking time is consumed by Andrew. And at the end of a couple, at the end of two weeks, I will know him really well. And he will know me really well. There's a depth of relationship that is accomplished in these intense uh, situations. And uh, there's a degree of pressure there as well, which leads to this point, another good means. It's the means of spiritual formation. There is a, uh, this is taken, the picture there, it's a bit dark, an axe being sharpened. Iron sharpens iron, Proverbs 27, 17. But when iron does sharpen iron, there are sparks that fly. And the nature of being in a tight knit community over a, a week or two is that there is friction and there are challenges and people object to you and things that you do and, thing, and things that you say and the way that you think. That is fine. That is fine. But it is a good way of spiritual formation. And we see the, the attitudes of our heart are revealed in a tight knit community that otherwise we might want to keep hidden away. It's God's way of dealing with us. He, he reveals uh, our uh, irritations and so on. But think of it like this. When Jesus calls his, his apostles, he doesn't call them in a harmonious way. Consider the apostles. And I think this is very interesting. When, we generally, when Scripture talks about the apostles, it generally talks about how they're getting things wrong, annoying one another, and being generally proud. But we can make a couple of deductions as to why. Simon the Zealot was called alongside Matthew the tax collector. These are diametrically opposed people. That Simon the Zealot is, is a, a freedom-fighting terrorist, uh, depending on which way you see it, uh, trying to throw off the rope of Roman, Roman occupation, and Matthew the tax collector is working for them. And yet they're both called to be apostles, and some people suggest maybe they were both sent out two by two. You can imagine how that relationship is going to work. But it's, it's a good thing that happens because they're both changed in the process of doing it. But going on teams, you will find that people uh, will annoy you, uh, especially you, if you have certain habits that are really important to you. Maybe you have a really, it's really important to wake up at 7.30 and have a quiet time. Well, that's for an hour or something. That's a problem if at 7.30 you have to be on a train going somewhere. And, and over a week, that just kind of grates on you. Or maybe maybe you just love having, this is probably like my son, a, a half an hour shower or something. And uh, that's a problem if you've got a team of like 10 people and there's one shower. So these kind of things really test us and test our character. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And uh, teams are a means of a chance to explore calling uh, and vision. And... This isn't necessarily meaning that you go somewhere and that's where you can end up for the rest of your life. It's interesting that Alison's example was she's praying for India and she ends up in Turkey and a whole bunch of other places as well. 
But when we step out, that's when God really does speak to us. It's interesting, in Acts 16, 9, one person has a vision. Who's that? It's Paul. He has a vision of the man from Macedonia, and, he, and he's calling them. But it's interesting, in the text it says, we saw, we understood. Luke puts himself in that context. We understood that we are being called to Macedonia. He didn't say, well, we understood that Paul is being called to Macedonia. Some, something happens in that dynamic. When we go somewhere, anywhere, then the Lord will lead us. I remember being at university, third year at university, I went on a month-long mission trip to Perugia in Italy. I did not end up uh, being called to the Italians, much as though that would have been a great thing. Uh, but it was really helpful to kind of like steer me and give me direction as to where the Lord really was calling me to to go. So a couple of things about uh, what makes a good team. So first thing, I'd say leadership. Teams do need leadership. We can go kind of as a bunch of different people, but without leadership, it will get chaotic pretty quickly. And that will not be a help to any church that we are going to serve. It will not be a help picture there incidentally is a towel and the ball. Servant leadership is what we want. Because a team that is clearly led will be a blessing to the church that it goes to serve. Because what will happen in the course of going on a team is that there will be challenges and pastoral problems and whatever. The church that you are visiting shouldn't be the people to sort out your pastoral problems. They have enough pastoral problems of their own. Ask any of the elders. I'm sure they will tell you about the different pastoral problems that are here. Imagine, for instance, if a team comes from Mexico and they turn up and they're here to serve. And then into day two, the the elders here are dealing with the pastoral issues that come up uh, within that team. They don't want to do that. That's not helpful. But good leadership, self-contained leadership can head that off at the pass. Another point that's pretty essential, I think, is this one of unity and good communication. Within the team, uh, and generally in church life, unity is something that must be striven for. And, and, and uh, well, Ephesians 4, verse 3, strive to maintain the unity. You've got, you have unity in being in Christ, but that unity must be maintained and defended. And if part of going on a team... And, and if prayer is part of it, that agreement in prayer is so essential, you can imagine what the, the opposite of that would be. It would be disunity. If you become divided by the people that, have, you know, the guy that has the shower uh, for half an hour in the morning when you're trying to get into the toilet, if you're annoyed at that person, it's going to make it very difficult to pray with that person. It's going to make it very difficult to go and evangelize with that person. And so unity must be striven for. Communication within that is also really key. I, I found in different teams that I've been on, it's so it's so difficult uh, to presume that everyone understands what you're saying, and so it can get a little bit repetitive. You say the same thing a lot uh, because eventually everyone will understand it. Uh, for the person that's understood it the first time you said it, they're just getting really bored because <laughs> they they hear you saying it once, twice, three. Stephen, you said this five times. But you're not saying it for them. You're saying it for this person who, on time five, oh, Stephen, you're saying this. 
Yes, <laughs> I am. I have been. And now you're hearing it. But communication is just a really key and important thing within a good team. And uh, lastly, I would suggest this planning. Now, I'm going to give you a caveat on the planning uh, because planning is, is really important. But here's a good quote, two good quotes. Uh, no plan of operations extends with any certainty beyond the first encounter with the main enemy forces. Only the layman believes that in the course of a campaign, he sees the consistent implementation of an original thought that has been considered in advance in every detail and retained to the end. And another one, Eisenhower, plans are worthless, but planning is everything. Plans are worthless, but planning is everything. What do I mean by that? Well, if you've been on the team, uh, you've probably experienced a degree of flexibility because things haven't happened as you've wanted them to happen. That's just, it's just the way it is. But realizing that this is going to happen should not excuse us from being diligent to make some good plans anyway. And because otherwise it's just a bit lazy, really, to be honest. If we're not making plans because we think everything's going to get thrown away, that, that is a bit lazy. You can make some plans. And in that whole process of planning and thinking about it, that in itself will help you when you have to adapt and you have to change some stuff around. So within the element of planning, we certainly need to consider the issue of language. And when you are going to a foreign, from your perspective, a foreign country, you must consider language. You must consider, can you speak the language that they are speaking there? And I'm afraid it's an English presumption that everyone speaks English. You know, it's, a, it's this kind of colonial perspective that England, English is the, the language of the world and everyone loves to speak English and will speak English, etc. That's just absolutely wrong. <laughs> You'll go somewhere, and yes, people do speak English, but how they speak English is a different factor. And what I mean by that is, do they like to speak English or do they not like to speak English? That, that's an important thing to consider. So, for instance, I, I've taken a mission trip to France before. In France, everyone can speak English. Do they like to speak English? No. They really don't like people speaking English. But uh, I've taken another team to, to Turkey, and people in Turkey love to speak English. And, and therefore, in that culture, it becomes an evangelistic inroad because people love to speak uh, English. They have no expectation that you speak any Turkish, and, it, and it's great. And people learn English generally in school and at university. So do you see what I mean? But you have to consider that before you go. And to presume that everything's going to be fine is a mistake. The other factor is that if you're going somewhere and you cannot speak that language, you must plan who is going to interpret for us. Because you can't hold everything upon one interpreter necessarily. Yeah, part of the planning might be, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna go, we're gonna bring a great teaching series, this guy's gonna translate, and then the, the, the contingency would be, and what if they're ill? And what if they're sick? And what if they've got COVID in there in isolation? What are we doing next? <laughs> we're putting all our eggs in the teaching basket, and that basket has been thrown to the floor and broken into pieces. So we plan for that. Another thing to plan and anticipate is culture. And I'm going to touch on this very briefly because we're going to do it a lot more later. But culture is a thing. And there are different signals behind uh, that we can look at and understand culture to be. So 
clothing, what people wear, how people touch, what food they eat, the relationships between the sexes, laughter, is it appropriate or not? Think of it like this. If imagine a team of Russians, to be provocative, come into uh, Durham Market Square, and they're all speaking Russian, and then they laugh out loudly. And what's the reaction of the people going to be around them? It's going to be, who are these people? Are they laughing at me? <laughs> are they laughing at us? Because you, you, know, you don't want to be excluded from a joke. Do you see what I mean? So it's just something to consider. How are people responding to us culturally? Touch, I've really noticed that uh, in coming to England. Touch is such a big thing. How do people greet one another in England? With a hello, a hug? Uh, in COVID times, we're, we're very detached from each other. Like physically, COVID has brought a wedge, and now we're, we're, we're meters apart from, from one, uh, one another. But in other countries, you will embrace your kiss, and, and you walk hand in hand, arm in arm. And so therefore, from a culture that is like that, they look at Westerners coming, and people from the, from England, and they w- will perceive them to be cold. Not necessarily that you are emotionally cold, but because you're physically manifesting kind of distance, the understanding of the, of the culture is you're cold. And it's just something to bear in mind, to consider, and to plan for accordingly. Another factor, and I think Alison also touched on this, is the legal existence or not of the church. What can you do legally? Is it all right to go onto the streets and to, pre- and to preach loudly or not? So some things that we could do. Evangelism and church planting. So George, uh, George's story, George and Alison's story is brilliant. You can plant churches. You can go and do evangelism. You can. And this, when we look at the New Testament, this generally was what they were doing first. When Jesus sent out the 12, when he sent out the 70, on Paul's missionary journeys, he was sending people out to evangelize and to plant churches. And this must be at least foremost in our mind. Why are we going? This should be something that we should consider and try to do. But then we need to factor in, how do we do it? Because Paul was going around the, 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 wor- the world of his day speaking fluently uh, Greek, speaking Aramaic, uh, probably in Latin as well. So he had the language to bypass cultures. And that's not something that we necessarily have. So we need to be considerate as to how we do our evangelism. What else happened, though? What other reason that teams went? For encouragement. For encouragement. This is a genuine thing. And we shouldn't kind of minimize it and say that it's not a thing. Because Paul's first missionary journeys are evangelistic. But what he did then was he goes back to encourage the churches that were established. So Acts 14, 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encourage them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And I love this part. So Paul is writing from Ephesus. He's writing to the Corinthian church. And clearly, three brothers have visited him. And he says this, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus, and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. They have refreshed my spirit and yours. 
therefore acknowledge such men. They have refreshed my spirit and yours. That's amazing. These three men, they come from Ephesus. Uh, they, they, they come from Corinth. They come to Ephesus where Paul is. They refresh his spirit. There is merit in sending a team simply to refresh the spirit of the believers that are there, especially in a context whereby they are persecuted. It makes such a difference for a team to come to a context whereby there are hardly any Christians and for you to be there, your presence is simply an encouragement. Because, oh my goodness, we're not alone. There are brothers and sisters out there in the world that love us and care for us enough that they would spend their time, come on and see us. Another reason to go would be prayer, intercession, and worship. So uh, one of the, the Old Testament stories, 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat, he wins a victory by sending people out in worship. That's how he wins a victory. It's not by anything else. He leads them out in worship. And there's something powerful in people simply worshiping. It, bre- it breaks apart something, something in the spiritual world. Intercession and prayer, as Alison talked about in the last session, has a merit in itself, sending people out to do that. And again, we bring an injection, if you like, spiritually into the arm of the church. Here are some people coming and praying and interceding, and it really does help. Another one, whoops, giving. When you look at why people traveled in teams, it is to give. And this is interesting Obviously, there's no instant bank transfer those days. So they're carrying, if they, one church is giving to another, they're literally carrying the cash around with them. But Paul doesn't just see it as a financial transaction. He sees when one church is giving financially to another, it is a work of grace. It is a mean of ministering grace somehow to that other church that's receiving it. And it is a means of building relationship. So Paul encourages an offering to be taken from the Gentile churches to be given to the church in Jerusalem. And that wasn't only because there was a famine at the time, which there was, but it was also a means of demonstrating that they are all part of the same family. And that is a wonderful thing. It's a, a foundation of relationship that was established there, that the Gentiles are in, they are in Christ, just as much as the Jews are in Christ. You're not foreigners, but you're in But the means of doing that, of demonstrating it, was financial, which is a fascinating way of doing it. Exercising gifting, and again, a question, with translation. Some giftings, more more obviously, need translation. If your gifting is teaching, you can't teach in English if they don't understand English. You, you, You must have a translation for that to be effective. Again, prophecy, for them to understand you, there must be a translation. But not all, not all giftings. If someone is sick, I can pray for them. They don't understand me. They're gonna, I'm, I'm not praying to them. <laughs> I'm praying to God to heal that person. If I'm praying uh, for the Lord to give the Holy Spirit to this person, again, I'm not praying for this person. I'm praying that God, uh, God would give the Holy Spirit to that person. Do you see? So some ministry and giftings are really irrespective of language and can be, uh, can be endeavored on anyway. Okay. So some things are also skill specific. And this is kind of interesting because uh, we can also, if we have a skill or a talent, that can also be readily applied on the mission field. What I mean by that? Well, what I've seen happen is a bunch of different things. So I've seen different teams come with these specific skills. People come with media skills. 
So a team came from Romania to the church in, in Izmir. They stayed for two weeks. They produced a really brilliant uh, introductory video to the church. We didn't have the ability to do that. But the, this team came from Romania. They brought all their kit with them. They did all the videos. They brought it all together, and it was absolutely super. Brilliant investment. Engineering, I've seen some engineers come on teams that built earthquake shelters in eastern Turkey that were used because everyone was in the streets. There was an earthquake in Van. Everyone was terrified. They were out in the streets in tents. These guys came in. They used local materials, but they were skilled engineers to do it. And the, the experience wasn't around on the ground. Arts, language, culture, music. I've seen people come in on musical teams gifted violinists and and they've used their skills to become to make concerts that are drawing other people in as well language you could do knowing that we do speak english knowing that in some situations it is an attractive thing you can put on a cultural evening very easily you could do language classes as well counseling one brilliant ministry that we saw in turkey was this there was a a couple uh, i think uh, leading a team and they did marriage counseling and they would come in. They realized that people didn't stay on the field because people's marriages would crack under pressure over a course of years. And they also realized that these, these couples, missionary couples in the country, needed some help. And they thought, well, we're not, they were an older couple. They thought, we're not going to learn Turkish, but we can come and do marriage intensive weekends and weeks. And we can really teach these missionaries helpful principles in their marriage that would enable them to stay longer. And they did, and they were a great blessing. Kids clubs. Kids clubs, a bit more flexible in language because you can do lots of physical activities. And in doing that, that can be a great blessing. Often churches do church camps. And the, the kids workers that have been slaving with the kids all years are, are often thrown in again at the kids camp. So an, an extra team coming in to host the kids camps can be a real blessing as well. Now, I need to... I've got. Uh, uh, I want to just want to make one other point as to kind of when to go, and what I mean by this is and to kind of think about the season that we're in in our lives, because some seasons are a bit more flexible to going than others. So, for instance, if you're single, you are more flexible to go than if you're married. Even if your spouse is like really keen to go, the reality is there is a restriction there. Uh, and when Paul talks about singleness, he is, t- does mention that you are freer to do stuff that otherwise uh, you're not. So if you're single, it's a good time to go. Physical conditions can be a restriction as well. For more obviously, if you're if you're eight months pregnant, you're not going to get on a plane. <laughs> They're just not going to take you on. Do you see what I mean? Or, or if you're if you're uh, if you're suffering from a long-term uh, medical condition, maybe in some countries it's going to be difficult for you to go there just to get insurance to get into that country. So you consider your health as well, as in what what, it, what restriction it could be. At sometimes in our lives we are ob- we have obligations to other people. So you might have a small family, you're obliged to those kids. Or you might have elderly parents, you're obliged to those elderly parents. So there are different seasons that can make it easier to go than not. When you start work, students, probably, unless you're a teacher, you're restricted in your holiday. You've got five weeks of the year. So that is another restriction upon you. And seasons, uh, well, not, not seasons of life, but just, well, 
more general seasons, exam seasons. So students, if I'm looking at you, chances are you're not going to go on a short-term team in May. Chances are you're not going to go on a short-term team during your uh, congregation week. Yeah? You're not going to go on a short-term team if, if it's proceeding when you're going to hand in a dissertation. So there are different times. And last point I want to make in terms of restriction about going or not is money. And I put this last because it's not really much of a restriction. Because <laughs> we're willing to spend money on so many things. But the other factor is this. If we really believe that the Lord has called us to go on a team, he will provide. And that is a really exciting thing, actually. When you have no money and you think, oh, I can't go, I can't go. Uh, but actually, the Lord is calling you to go and you kind of step out in faith and you start praying. Ackland has really fun stories about money appearing in her bank account when she wanted to go to Iran uh, to smuggle in uh, Bibles in a suitcase. So you can ask her that story in, in the break. But I just uh, just want to finish. This is like a, a picture. This is a team. I, the last team I took pre-COVID, it was to Izmir with a, a bunch of interns. And it was just such a really good time. It was a, a really uh, fun time. We grew in so many different ways. Relationships were made and built. God loves these short-term teams. Yeah, you spend money in going, but you spend money in going anywhere, right? But what you get when you go is just a wonderful depth of relationships with those brothers and sisters that you've gone with. You've known that you've been a blessing to the church community that you're hosting, that have hosted you. You've known that you've had opportunity to evangelize people that otherwise haven't heard the gospel because you're going, you spoke to that person. It's just a great thing. It's a great thing. And I would encourage us as a church just to consider, oh Lord, where are you calling me? Oh Lord, where are you calling us? How can we go? How can we serve? Amen. Thank you. Thanks so much, Stephen. And we are going to hear from, we've heard from Stephen Harris. Now it's 